if you walk out into the natural world or even into your own backyard and it's just everything's just green you don't know you don't even see individual species you don't see any plants you know no one and you've heard all these stories poisoning and oh toxic mushrooms and don't touch this and poison ivy and bears and all this stuff in your mind right Right, and all of these movies and books about people having these terrible experience survival situations (laughs) bear grills is drinking pee out of a snake skin it's like all this crazy (laughs) stuff right that is in our culture um it feels pretty threatening yeah but now for you, like you were just describing, so let's say somebody learns even just 10 plants that are in their environment that are common. Now when you're walking down the street, it's not just green everywhere. It's like, I know that one. I know that one. I know that one. And yeah. once you not only know them, but know what they can offer to you and what yeah. you can offer back yeah. and how you become allies to mm-hmm. one another, mm-hmm. suddenly now you're in that town full of friends Right. And the longer you do this stuff and the more you learn, the more the natural world is, becomes this incredibly immersive, beautiful experience. And actually you start to see the sort of hostility of the world that we've created. Yes. Hey, 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 friends. Welcome to the Neckin Podcast. I'm your host, Martisa Williams. In this space, we'll explore a whole range of practices for our individual and collective freedom. My entire life has been spent soaking up practice after modality, after protocol, to free my body and soul. Join me in conversations with the world's foremost thought leaders on topics ranging from health to sex to spirituality to justice. So, are you ready to get naked with me? Well, let's talk about it. So what makes for a good quality beef? For me, it needs to be organic, it needs to taste amazing, and it needs to be sustainable. Well, with today's sponsor, Buttermeat Co., you can get all of that and more. I mean, it's also woman-owned and local to upstate New York. And did I mention it's delicious? If you go to buttermeatco.com slash discount slash naked, you can get 10% off with code NEKKID, N-E-K-K-I-D, and free delivery in Rochester, New York. Go do it. So let me paint a picture for you. You're in your house, you're chilling on the couch, You've got maybe a candle lit, some mood lighting, my voice is in your ear. There's a whole vibe happening. But what's missing is the wine. Nothing pairs best with a podcast than a glass of wine. Specifically for me, this Finger Lakes Dry Riesling from Living Roots Wine & Co. This bi-continental urban winery in Rochester, New York, and then not-so-urban winery in Adelaide, South Australia, was started by friends of mine and married duo Seb and Colleen Hardy. 
Living Roots sources its grapes from local growers in the Finger Lakes where Colleen is from and the Adelaide Hills where Seb is from to produce small batch wines reflecting the sense of place found in their hometowns. Right now they have some amazing deals on their Finger Lakes whites including this dry Riesling that I'm sipping on. It is bone dry with zesty citrus characters. Perfect for summer nights and perfect for pairing with local dishes. If you are interested in grabbing some wine and getting it delivered right to your door, you can use code NEKKID, N-E-K-K-I-D, for 10% off at checkout. It is Thursday again, and this is what, our like fourth Thursday together? It's already moving. We've already had a month long of a relationship. <laughs> um, hey, how was your week? What's been going on? I feel like this week has just flown by, can't really remember, um, other than my partner and I celebrated four years together, which feels kind of wild. Um, but yeah, it's been a good week. Are you excited about this episode? Because I damn sure am. We are talking this week with Daniel Vitalis, who is the host of Wild Fed, which is a podcast and a show. And for 10 years, he's lectured around North America and abroad, offering workshops that helped others lead healthier, more nature-integrated lives. He's a successful entrepreneur who founded the nutrition company Surf Thrival in 2008, and most recently he hosted the popular podcast Rewild Yourself, which if you haven't heard it, go back and, and listen to it because it's really, really good. It's super interdisciplinary, like it's got kind of coming at this Rewild Yourself idea from multiple angles. It's damn, damn good. Um, it's where I first kind of met him and got introduced introduced to his work. Um, but Daniel is also a registered Maine guide, which means that he can guide people through hunting and foraging and things like that. Um, and he's a writer, public speaker, interviewer, lifestyle pioneer, who's especially interested in helping people reconnect with wildness, both inside and outside of themselves. He created the Wild Fed brand after learning hunting, fishing, and foraging as an adult. So what's cool about Daniel is that he is a adult onset learner, which most hunters grew up in families that hunted and had been doing this all their lives. He's someone who kind of came to it as an adult, which is what I am, and, and most people who are kind of getting into it in later age are. He lives in Maine with his beautiful wife, Avani, and their hound, Ellie. And you can find him all over the internet, and I really highly suggest doing it. In this episode, we talk about a bunch of stuff. And I'm not even going to give you all the show notes because it's down in the little description box below. But we talk about Daniel's origin story. We talk about the consequences of domestication, which is not something we really think about often. We're like, oh yeah, we're really grateful to be able to live in these homes and things, but there's consequences to that. We talk about how humans are freaking narcissists and how Daniel used to be a vegan and like used to run the circuit of veganism and talk about it. And then how he went from that 
to hunting and foraging. We talk about how living in isolation from the natural world is causing us loneliness. Um, and it's important to like meet your plant neighbors. And then we start getting into hunting and race and the racial divide in hunting and how we all own more land than we know that we do. And we talk about the Second Amendment rights. Um, so we talk about gun laws. We talk about our beliefs around guns and um, how our government no longer actually works for us. We work for it. And then we talk about some tips for adult onset hunters. So if you're interested after this episode to kind of maybe dip your toe into it, we give you he gives you some tips on how to maybe do that. Um, but just a couple kind of trigger warnings. I did mention that we talk about gun rights. So we do talk about guns and we also talk about, um, we talk about race in this. Um, and there's a lot of kind of education that comes from my part, um, to him. So he, it's funny because by the end of the episode, he is interviewing me in a way. Um, so we talk about race, we talk about guns, and then we obviously talk about talk about hunting. Nothing graphic really at all, but just so you know, and it can be triggering for some folks. So just wanting to let you know that from the beginning, before we jump into this week's episode, I uh, just want to give you a heads up about next week's episode with Richie Reseda, who is an incredible both educator and activist and CNN did a documentary on him called The Feminist on Cell Black Y and since being out he has created organizations and has helped lead the movement for black lives and prison abolition and he's just an incredible human and it was an incredible conversation and I'm very excited to um, share that with you. So that's next week. This week's is incredible too, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks for uh, having me on and sharing your platform with me. Absolutely, absolutely. So the first question that I ask all my guests is, what made you you? Yeah, I've been looking at that question for a couple <laughs> of days and thinking about it. And <clears throat> it's like, the older I get, I'm in my early 40s right now. And the more I kind of come to terms with how I grew up, I realized that that was like the formative thing that you know, has resulted in the work that I do right now. So mm. I grew up in New England, but I grew up real poor and um, in a lot of psychological abuse mm. and a lot of physical abuse, not really from my family, but from outside my family too. And so um, I was kind of experienced a lot of abandonment. Mm. And my mom was really, you know, looking back now, it's like when you're little, she's your mom. But as you look back, you're like, oh, she was a kid. Mm -hmm. you know? And she was really dealing with a lot of trauma herself. So I grew up in this like kind of demented psychological environment and, and one of an, an abandonment. Mm -hmm. And that meant I had to like learn how to take care of myself. Really step by step by step by step because no one was really taking care of me. Yeah. And I had, we had moments of, we had bright spots and we had dark spots. And, but throughout it all, I, I learned like a wild child how to take care of myself. And it gave me this interest 
And what kind of decisions do people arrive at when they're not being handed those decisions? Ultimately, mm. You know, if yeah. you remove all of that and, and the world's just full of options, like what do you arrive at? I, I hesitate to say naturally, because obviously I was still living in, you know, in a very unnatural environment, but it gave me like a little glimpse into what a wild mind like might like might actually be like. So that led over the years to me arriving at unique ideas about food and about how we take care of ourselves. You know, food's always been the central thing I come back to. But again, looking back, it's like, it's because meals weren't guaranteed. Yeah. And the quality of the food was really bad. And, you know, nobody was cooking it. And I just had to like figure it out. And so, you know, I arrived at, I guess it's that um, physician heal thyself is that saying, right? Mm -hmm. It's that the wounded healer journey. So I think a lot of us well, all of us grow up with trauma, right? And it's not always like, you know, part, partly for me, it was socioeconomic, but it's not always because, I mean, I, re, I meet rich kids with lots of problems, you know? Right, right, definitely. Kids who can't get their lives together. I feel like uh, all of us are born into this realm and, and trauma happens to us. And then we're constantly responding to that. And those of us who do healing work in the world, our healing journey becomes the medicine that we share back with people. Absolutely. And so for me, what made me me was really this, very difficult upbringing, um, learning how to struggle against that, figuring out things that worked. And then the second part of my life has been defined about how do I repackage that and share that with people um, in a way that isn't really about me, but is about them. And um, what I have noticed is that the domestication of the mind and body is like a default setting that we all just are born with. But there's something in us that's so ancient that is still there. I mean, it's, it's still an operating system in us and yeah. it's not that hard to access it, but, and no one's stopping you from accessing it, except <laughs> that you don't know it's always, you don't always know it's there. And yeah. so I, I feel blessed in a way to have been abandoned in that sense so that I could figure some of this stuff out. Uh, you know, it took me years to kind of come back around to feeling good about all of that. And I obviously am still you know, I still process that, but I think without it, um, I would have ended up um, doing things that I'm sure I would have really loved, but I don't think they would have had like a sort of a revolutionary aspect to them. You know? Right, right. Thank you for sharing that. I, when you're talking about the abandonment and being very personal for you, it got me to thinking about kind of the abandonment as a collective that we have mm -hmm. to these more ancestral like ways it started getting me to thinking about why I even started getting interested in this work at all in the rewilding kind of thought and beliefs and you had a whole lot to do with it listening to your rewild yourself podcast had a lot to do with it can you talk about what rewild yourself means um because my listeners for example I grew up a very girly black girl in Detroit in the, on the east side of Detroit and there's no wildlands in within an hour of Detroit, not for real. Yeah. And so for me, this is like a very revolutionary idea of going back to the land, going back to um, being like, well, maybe these four walls that we're always walking in and out of is not the best situation for us as animals. Mm -hmm. We're humans, but as animals. Um, and so can you just talk about that? Because I'm sure so many of my listeners have the upbringing that I do and have the kind right. of experience that I do and don't even know like what 
what the fuck is we found yourself in the first place? <laughs> yeah. And, and just to be clear, I didn't grow up with um, any kind of expo- real exposure to the outdoors, except that I grew up in New England, which, you know, even when it's urban, is a very forested place. Like even where you are now in Rochester, right? It's yeah. like you, it, there's trees everywhere still. And it's, Absolutely. it's even like sort of mixed in with the urban. So I knew what it was to kind of go play in what I thought of as the woods. Now I don't think of it as so much of the woods. It's like sort of, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's more like the space between buildings or whatever. But I, you know, for me, it was the woods as a kid. So I had some exposure to nature, but not anything significant because a lot of the people who do the kind of things that I do today grew up immersed in a culture of it. And, and incidentally, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later when you didn't have that figuring out how to get into that culture can be pretty challenging, especially as an adult. So, uh, to me, what it means and rewilding is this thing that's taken on a lot of meanings to a lot of different people. So I'm just going to be sharing from my perspective, kind of how I see it. But to me, it's what you said before, homo sapiens is an animal, Mm -hmm. right? We are in the family of great apes, which is pretty cool. And there are some extant members of the family today. So there's the chimpanzees and the bonobos. There's the orangutans, the gorillas. But um, we used to be more species of humans than we are today. We're the last ones, the last extant species of, of human. So human means genus homo. So right now, Homo sapiens sapiens, this is the only one left. About 100,000 years ago, there was like six different species of humans. Mm. And that's neat to think about because today we have lots of races of humans, right? but we're all the same one single species, right? So right. you can see this like incredible diversity in our morphology. So tall, short, dark, light, right? Blue yeah. eyes, brown eyes, like all these hair colors and hair textures. And these are all expressions of one species. Mm-hmm. But 100,000 years ago, you had Neanderthals, still humans, and there were humans like us here too at the same time. And there was Homo florensis, the, the hobbit, they called him. I mean, very similar to what you see in Lord of the Rings with the hobbits, uh-huh. big oversized feet, very <laughs> tiny bodies, like actual another species of humans. So we're the last one, right? It's, yeah. it's pretty crazy when you think about it. So we uh, we lived in our current form, the form we're in now, for about 300,000 years. Mm. Now, if we could go back 300,000 years and we could meet some of those people, they probably look a little more rugged than we look today. We've become more what's called gracilized or graceful in our biology, in our mm-hmm. physiology. So we're probably a little uh, leaner as far as muscle mass. We're probably a little less hairy. We're probably, you know, a few things have changed in that regard. For many of us, though, again, it's so many expressions of people. Right. Um, but if we could take one of those people and run them through like a pilot's course, they could fly a Boeing jet 300,000 years ago. They're the same people as mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we live 300,000 years as hunter-gatherers. So our life, it's not just that we got all our food from hunting and gathering, but people who are hunter-gatherers have this very different way of organizing themselves socially, structurally, mm-hmm. which what is our biological norm. And I think it's interesting today because you look at a lot of what people are looking for culturally right now, and they touch on these biological norms. Like you can feel inside there's something not right about how we've got things set up. Right. A lot of us struggle to define it because we don't really know our history. And mm-hmm. when we talk about knowing our history, we tend to think of the last couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. We don't tend to think in 300,000 year chunks, right? right? Big history. So when we look at big history, we go all the way back, we see we lived 300,000 years as hunter-gatherers. And then about 10,000 years ago, which is just this little tiny sliver of our history, I mean, it's yesterday, 
Mm-hmm. We shift over completely to this agriculturalist model and all this stuff flows out of that. So we, we begin what's called the Neolithic revolution and it starts in a few different places. It happens um, in Mesopotamia with the growing of wheat and barley. It happens in Asia with the growing of rice. It happens in Mesoamerica and into South America with the growing of maize. These are all three plants I just mentioned. They're all grasses. And when you grow grasses for seed, we call the seeds grains. And while grains have factored into the human diet this whole 300,000 years because we ate whatever was in our environment that was edible, Mm -hmm. we didn't have this thing where it was like our staple crop because we didn't grow things like we do today. We tended to the wild. Once we shifted over in that model, everything changed for us really dramatically, really fast. So again, it starts about 10,000 years ago, and we begin immediately having to build city-states. And city-states lead to these hierarchical systems Mm. and massive changes in our diet, massive changes in our health. We see actually what's really interesting is people imagine like if you went back 100,000 years that people only lived to be 30 that their teeth must have been rotting and falling out, that they must have had all these diseases. But actually what happens when we look back through the fossil record is we see like almost no cavities. Like Mm. the diet is so strong that teeth don't only grow in perfectly, unlike most of us today who end up with some kind of orthodontic surgery to alter our teeth. And we we don't ask like, hey, what's going on here? Why don't our teeth fit in our mouths anymore? (laughs) Like that's strange. Right, right. I don't have to get stuff taken out. Why do I have to remove teeth to fit fit them all in my mouth, right? Right. What did we used to do? (laughs) And if you look at nature, what you see is nature's, um, it runs such a clean system. There's not like leftover extra stuff. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't make sense that in the past, we just had this problem that we dealt with until recently when we invented dentists. It didn't Mm -hmm. work like that. We actually had really, really good teeth and dentition, good dental arches. We also see that issues like arthritic conditions emerged out of domestication. So when people started farming, we see all of these lesions on their skeletons suddenly. Mm. We see that their brain cases shrunk a little bit, that their bodies actually got smaller, that they started to take on all what we call the diseases of civilization, which have to do with not moving enough and eating too much. Mm. Because when we were hunter-gatherers, people moved all day long. And it wasn't just the gathering and acquisition of food, but it was the processing of food together, which I think is probably where we get some of the, it's really interesting when you process food with people because doing what I do today, which is a lot of modern day hunting and gathering, you spend probably more time processing than you do pursuing the food. Right. It's a lot of work. And you see out of that communal work, the origins of things like music, for instance, Mm -hmm. Because you can picture if you've got 25 people with stones all pounding, <laughs> you know, on a, on a seed, let's say, to free it from its husk, that eventually we start to, to, rhythm, to, to develop rhythm together, right? We start to develop song together and all these things that we see when we look, you know, at humans living in natural environments, they're born out of our food acquisition patterns. So all that changed 10,000 years ago and speed it up to today, we find ourselves born in hospitals, living in four walls slaving away, dying in hospitals, ad infinitum. And most of us don't really know anything about our wild environment anymore. So what I like to liken it to is what happened with dogs and wolves. And it's super simple here. It's like all the domesticated dogs that you've ever interacted with are gray wolves technically. 
and the wolf now is, you know, restricted to northern latitudes. We've really tried to wage war on them here in North America and actually tried to eradicate them right. um, and tried to push them out. This idea of let's get rid of predators, which we didn't realize would eventually have really negative consequences on the environment. But that's another story. Out of wolves came domesticated dogs, but dogs are technically gray wolves, but they don't really resemble them anymore and they don't behave like them anymore. And so it'd be easy to think that dogs came from somewhere else. You know, it's easy to not notice what they actually are, but what they are is domesticated wolves. And when we want to figure out how to make a dog happier, we just got to look at wolves and figure out how to recreate some of the stuff that wolves need. Mm -hmm. So we know wolves don't live on a diet of kibble and we know, you know, we know there's no vegan wolves, right? right so right. we start to look at the wolf diet. We don't have to give, you know, an elk or, you know, a, a deer to our dog, but we need to say, hey, if that's what the wolf eats, how do we give some of those things to our dog? And if we look at all those lifestyle traits of the wolf and we start to like filter them into something that works for dogs, we can kind of rewild our dogs a little bit. And so my postulation is this, if we can look at human beings as a natural animal mm -hmm. and ask ourselves, what are the needs of us, you know, of our species, and we can give ourselves some of that, that's what I mean by rewilding. Because right now what we're doing, it's almost like we do everything the opposite of what our physiology and our biology needs right. and what our psychology needs too. So when I say rewild yourself, I'm saying, hey, let's take a look at what natural humans do. And in order to do that, we have to look at people who hunt and gather. And men, there's not many of those people left. So we have to look at what do we know from the archaeology? What do we know from uh, the ethnography? And what do we know from still living, still extant hunter-gatherers today? And if we can build our lifestyle off of that a little bit, I think we can, we can be a much more satisfied, happy people, you know? Absolutely. I love that. I think I've never heard you put it together like that. Like I've heard all the pieces, Not but I mean, yeah. yeah, but like putting it together like that, especially with the wolves is such a good illustration of it. Yeah. Um, I'm always joking with my baby boomer black parents about like, what like you know i'm i'm wearing blue blocking glasses and trying to explain to them why and like <laughs> yeah. you know they i'm telling them i'm going to learn how to hunt and they're like what are you doing we go to the grocery store and trying to explain to them how these four walls are encasing us yeah. you know and it's keeping us like my mom has back issues like if there was more movement maybe there wouldn't have that in different variety of movement than just what we yeah. Um, experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And more complexity too, because if you were to walk out into any natural environment or even like replenishing environment, like where I live here, all these trees have been cut. This isn't wild forest from a hundred thousand years ago. I mean, this has been logged and everything, but you know, trees have grown back up. If we were to walk out into that and we could just, let's say we had a, you know, a hundred square yards of it. Mm -hmm. And we look around that environment and we compare it to 100 square yards of any built environment. The amount of complexity going on in the natural environment, every leaf, and if you look at any one leaf, it is its own universe. As you start to zoom in on it, its veins, its cells, all of the microbes living in and on it. And that's just one leaf. And you look around at the complexity of the patterns of all those leaves. And then you realize, oh, there's multiple species of trees and of understory plants. And there's all of the invertebrates and insects, and there's all of the mammals, and then there's the birds, and then there's the water moving and the soil and the soil microbes. And you look at all this complexity, and then you go into a built environment, even the coolest places we construct are so pale in mm. how much information they offer 
versus the natural environment. So part of going into the natural environment for me is a couple things. One, that complexity makes us more intelligent, in my opinion. Yeah. It, like it, it forces us to start to be more introspective and start to say, wait a second, like, there, okay, there's this idea in science. Science will say that the human brain is the most complex uh, internetworked thing in the known universe. Right. I like get real cringy about that. <laughs> I really get cringy about that because there's this sort of belief emerging that humans are the pinnacle of everything that the universe has ever created. Absolutely. And when we go into the natural environment, there's this aha thing that starts happening where you're like, we didn't make this. We don't even know how this works. We don't have the ability to create an artificial species yet. We don't even understand our genome. We are playing with powerful tools that we don't really understand yet. Mm -hmm. And I think that when, if we're going to be holistic about looking at natural people, then one of the things we have to quickly realize is they're not, they're not atheists. They don't, um, they believe that, you know, every, every indigenous group that we would look at would have their own belief system, but we would see commonalities that say, basically, we're really lucky to get to be here and to get to live amongst this complexity that is so far beyond anything that we know how to create. Yeah. Uh, But we're in this environment now where the most, you know, we have iPhones. It's like, it starts feeling like we've conquered everything and figured all this stuff out when we really haven't, right? It's like, we haven't even we think we explore space, but we don't. We just we just float something in upper orbit and we call it a space station. You know, right. it's a plane that's real high up, basically. Um, we So I think it's important for us to get out of our uh, collective ego of thinking mm-hmm. that we've conquered nature in the world and realize like, wow, we're lucky just to be here. So that happens in nature too. And, and I think the four walls are so dumbed down. It's such a dumb environment. Yeah, You know, it's really sad. Like growing up as a kid, I had to retreat into my imagination because the environment around me was not just, it was also ugly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, some people are really lucky to, to grow up in places that are really beautiful, naturally right. beautiful. Like, you know, I go visit friends in California, for instance, and it's just like, oh, wow. I mean, this is, you know, there's some really breathtaking landscapes, right, you know, right. where I live is beautiful to many people, but it's also like a wall of green around me, right? I don't mm-hmm. get to see epic you know, mountains and massive, you know, it's less of that kind of thing. But where I grew up, it was like the four walls thing you're talking about. And everything was dirty and dingy. So you go into nature and it's like, it cleans itself. It renews itself. Mm -hmm. And every year it's, nobody's planting these trees. They plant themselves. Everything is a self-functioning thing. And I I think that we're starving for that. And we're taking it out on each other too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting what I was thinking when you were saying that is like the narcissism that we have, like of our own belief in like that we are the center of the universe, that everything around us is made for us. And not only does it hurt the earth around us, but it hurts ourselves. Like it truly, truly hurts ourselves. But I want to go back a little bit. How did you go from like the four walls of your New England childhood to being living in Maine and living off of the land mostly? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah we came to Maine actually to be for a, a to go to a shelter for abused women. Mm. Um, so I ended up there and I started high school in that from that shelter. Okay. And got myself kicked out of high school in like two weeks, expelled, <laughs> permanent, you know, that was my goal, to be honest. I, I, that, that in particular incident wasn't necessarily, but I was feeling like school was not the environment for me. I was feeling like held back because okay. I had such a hungry mind and I wanted to learn. 
Yeah. I really wanted to learn. And I think, again, it came from being born an intelligent, inquisitive kid, but, but having like it, almost like malnourishment of the mind and that I, there wasn't enough around me to feed me. And what I got from school, I feel blessed to have gotten foundational stuff, you know, literacy stuff and, and numeracy stuff. My wife is a school teacher and she works with kids on literacy and numeracy. And I'm not a big fan of the, you know, school system. Mm-hmm. but she's more of a fan of the school system. She's worked in it her whole life. And it's been cool to meet each other on this because what I've come to understand is that if you don't have numeracy and literacy, it's like, good luck. Yeah, You don't have that. I mean, it's, and I didn't realize how many people don't have that. Yeah. And one of the things that I've learned from her is that a lot of the kids who struggle with literacy are hyper-intelligent kids who are frustrated with the silly complexity of our language. You know, why do, why do, you know, one thing she and I talk about all the time, like, why do we have to have a C and a K? How does C sometimes make an S sound? These things are confusing. And as a kid, it was like, but I, I was lucky to get a, a baseline education so I could read and learn. Yeah. But once I got out of high school, I just took off. Mm. It was like, finally, I could start to absorb information. I started to take like adult ed classes and I mostly just started to walk around. I didn't, ha- I didn't get a license till I was in my 20s, a driver's license, mm-hmm. it, my mid-20s. And so I'd walk everywhere. And what I'd figured out was trails so I could get around the town that I lived in without having to be on the road. My mom kind of raised us. It's weird to say, but she raised us like fugitives almost. <laughs> like we were always on the run kind of a thing. So I like to be in the woods where no one could see me. Mm. And I would walk 10 miles a day back and forth my town through trails. And that would put me in contact with plants all the time. And I would start bumping into raspberries and blueberries. And, and I was never afraid to try things. You know, I don't have a huge fear of failure in that sense. So I would try things. That's how I got interested in plants. Hunting took a long time for me to get to. Right. But I got really interested in plants and, and I started having these experiences with, you know, it'd be like apple season and I would see an apple tree. And I was also kind of like the type of person like sneak in at night, pull some apples off. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, um, over the years though, I ended up connecting and it was the early days of the internet. And I started connecting in with information on veganism. And what I had been asking myself for my time in nature is these questions that we're talking about now, what is natural for people? And I really wanted to know what's a natural diet for people. Mm -hmm. because like I said before, if we're thinking about dogs, it's not hard to figure out what the natural diet for a dog is because we know what wolves eat and we know that they're wolves. Right. Right. And most animals, if we had an, you know, the, basically we just need the Wikipedia page on any species and we just scroll down and there's like a diet section and then it'll explain in a couple paragraphs what that animal eats. And you're like, Oh, now I know. (laughs) But then you go like homo sapiens diet. It's like, (laughs) no one knows. Right, it gets really complicated, and I got really fooled into this idea that veganism was the natural diet for people. It made sense to me because people were saying things like, "Well, think about before we had fire." I didn't know that there was never a time when humans had fire. We've always had fire. That's a really neat thing about humans. So I said that we're three hundred thousand years old. Uh We had fire since the first human, because first Homo sapien, because we got fire from species before us. They already had it. So there was like never a time where our species didn't have fire. I see what you're saying. Yep. We're actually born of fire. We're actually the, we are a species that requires a technological um, implement in order to live. That's really fascinating about us. And it might be why we're not so hairy compared to other mammals. It might be the reason for a whole lot of aspects of us, but 
we uh, we've always had fire. This is so mm. neat. I think it's why we're so susceptible to like TV and movies and phones because it's sort of like if you stare into a fire, you notice you can spend hours doing that and feel entertained. Yes. And I think we've gone from the collective fire to unfortunately to the individual fire. Right. And we know it. We call it the iPhone. Like you were talking about that narcissism before yes. where you put the, the word I in front of the thing, you know? It's like my fire. And only <laughs> the idea in the past that like you would have your own fire and everybody else would have their own fires and you'd right. all stare into it. It's so weird, right? But, uh, but so I had this idea that human beings didn't have fire. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand that all our food had been domesticated. So I imagined a world where watermelons were growing and apples were, you know what I mean? I just didn't mm-hmm. understand. And so I got convinced that human beings were like Adam and Eve in the story, right? Just walking through the garden, just eating whatever we wanted to, not cooking it, not killing anything. It seemed really beautiful to me. Yeah. I didn't understand what, I, what I, I think now, which is that there's this poignancy to living in that things die so that life can continue. And I didn't right. really want to accept that, you know? Um, yeah. So I got into raw food veganism and I spent 10 years doing it. And I climbed this ladder because it's like any scene, there's like a social hierarchy there. And I eventually, I was helping out at workshops. And before I knew it, I was being asked to speak on stage. And I got the opportunity to tour the country in that community. But by that time, I had given up on veganism. So I have this mm. weird story in that I spoke at some of the biggest vegan conferences on the topics of eating animal food and until eventually they were like, no more, get this guy out of here. You, know? <laughs> you gotta go. <laughs> but, but I had come across this, I come across this book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston Price. Are you familiar with that book? No, I'm not. I think that book is probably going to be, it's probably going to get canceled because <laughs> oh. it's written at the turn of the century, right? But okay. Uh, or maybe even, yeah, early, probably early 1900s. But this guy, Weston Price, was a dentist. Okay. And you know this idea of we call a doctor who is uh, malpracticing, we call him a quack? Uh-huh. Comes from the word quacksilver, which is the German pronunciation of quicksilver, which means mercury. Mm. And it was a reference to dentists putting mercury in people's teeth. Mm-hmm. Because mercury is one of the first metals we got our hands on because it's, it's got such a low melt temperature that if you have the ore for mercury, it's like really easy to just heat it over a fire and the mercury will come out of the stone, unlike something like iron, which has this incredibly high melt point. So right. we've known about mercury for a really long time and we've known it's not only toxic, but makes you go insane. Mm. So like the mad is a hatter idea or the mad hatter uh, from... Um, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. That idea was that hatters, people who made top hats, worked with mercury. Right. And they'd go crazy over the course of their careers. And so mad as a hatter is a reference to that. So is so is a quack. So this guy felt, hey, all these dentists around me are quacks. Why are they putting mercury in people's teeth? Mm -hmm. And he started to go around the world. He wanted to see people without dentistry and people without industrialized food systems. What were their mouths like? Mm. So he traveled the world and he did spend time with a bunch of traditional cultures, but primarily with indigenous cultures. Um, And he photographed their dental arches Mm -hmm. and he photographed their teeth and he looked for cavities. And what he found was that when you went to cultures that had uh, only recently shifted their diets over to like a, what we call a Western diet, that they had these very broad dental arches, very wide beautiful teeth and even sometimes space between those teeth like more than enough room hearkening back to what you brought up earlier for all their teeth Uh, and your dental arch is one of the last things that comes together in the womb and that's why it's so common to see a cleft palate 
that mm, mm-hmm. what that will be that happens right that's like the last thing that comes together is your palate okay it's in the womb so it's easy for there to be issues with that well one of the things that happens or what he sort of was postulating was in an absence of correct nutrients we don't get full formation in there mm. then what he showed was you could look at a person and you could look at like two generations later once the once the western food came in Two generations later, cavities, teeth are all crooked. They're not fitting in the mouth anymore. So he documented that. When I got my hands on that book and I just needed to see those photos, and it was Mm -hmm. like, oh, these people aren't vegan. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? They had a very significant presence of animal foods and that they had about 10 times the fat-soluble vitamins and about five times the water-soluble vitamins that we have in our diet today. So that really inspired me to start looking at this idea of the real natural human diet and it took many, many years, but I slowly started to go. Eventually, what happened just to skip up was started to be like the, all the philosophy about this stuff started to feel pretty empty to me. I was mm. speaking at all these conferences. I was podcast, doing all these things, getting to yeah. be a personality in it, but feeling like I was just talking, 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 talking. And I was like, can I do it? I mean, what's the point of talking about if no one can do it? And so I was like, well, I'm going to try it. I'm going to, you know, I was already foraging a little bit, but it was like, can I start to eat a significant amount of wild food? And can I be part of keeping a connection between human beings and wild foods open, you know, in the 2020? And is that possible? And so I've spent now the last five or six years really deep in that, real deep. And I've started this project Wild Fed, which is teaching people you know, sort of through showing them that there is this possibility to cut out the middleman of all of the food systems, industrialized food systems, and start to go direct to the natural world for food. And, and the things that I learned along the way are pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, if no one has seen Daniel's wild fed show, you should absolutely go and look at it. It is so cool. Um, kind of watching you, I don't know why I got, so the first like hunting show I started watching was Meat Eaters. Um, And I was like, this is something completely different. And again, I like literally binged Meat Eaters for like (laughs) maybe two or three weeks. Like that was all I was watching. And I was just, oh my God. Because you again, black girl from the east side of Detroit had no, this is not a world that I like lived in or understood. So it's so interesting because all I know is I'm hungry. I'm going to the grocery store. I'll make me some food. The meat looks like little slabs of muscle that I don't even identify as muscle. And that's it. And um, so it's interesting too, kind of your story for me uh, of you going from being vegan to being a hunter is bizarre, but also it like parallels my experience in a lot of ways because I have struggled for so long. For me, the reason why I wanted to go vegan was not because I believed it was the optimal. um, uh, You have a background as a vegan? Yeah, so I was, I would dabble from like vegetarian to vegan to this back and then back to eating meat. And just for the last about six or seven years, I have done that game. Yeah. And so the catalyst for me was more the um, environmental effects of meat yeah, and sure. eating meat. And I was like, I don't know. I just, I feel like I'm doing the world a disservice. And then also was the fact that I had this weird belief that why should I be eating meat if I cannot sit and look in that animal's face and kill it? Mm-hmm. Like the kind of like animal welfare situation of yeah. like, this doesn't feel in alignment for me. 
And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, my body needs meat to be healthy. Like I do not feel healthy unless I'm, I have some type of animal product in my diet. And then it was like, okay, so in order for me to not feel like a hypocrite, I need to learn how to be in relationship with the animals in this way. I need to learn how to actually be on the ground with them, know their environment and be able to look at them in the face and take their life. And so for me, it's almost like, it's like a philosophical thing for me to like struggle with, am I taking this life? Am I not? Like, how did you reconcile that for yourself? Because it, I struggled with, I'm still struggling with it a lot. There's a, there's a, there's going to be, I, I, there's not a lot I would predict about the future, but one thing I'll predict is that it won't be long before there's a generation of kids who are like shaming us saying, you just would go, you were participating in that. Mm. You were participating in an industry where animals were treated like that. How could right. you do that? And we're going to be like, you don't understand. It was the culture. And they're going to be like, yeah. don't want to hear it. Like, how right. could you do that? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality in 2020 is most of us are just waking up to this. This yes. stuff is like, it's just what we were born to and we didn't know. Right. right. And then once you know, it's like, you're saying, where do you begin? Right. right? And so um, for me, it started like this. It was like, I'm going to start going to the farmer's market and meet people who raise animals. Mm. You know, it didn't start with hunting. It was like, I'm going to connect in with the people who raise animals. And so it's be like, and then it got to where I was like, I'm going to go and purchase a whole cow while it's alive. I want to see that cow. Mm-hmm. I want to like see how it's living. And then they're going to have it killed and butchered and I'll pick up all that meat. By the way, for people listening, that's, it's silly to go by piece by piece at the store because the cost is two to three times what you'd pay. And this would be a real smart time to go into winter with a full freezer of food because mm. um, we're in very uncertain moment. Yeah. And, and people are, you know, food is the critical thing. So yeah. anyway, that said, I started there. And when it came to actually the part about killing, which I didn't have really any experience with, I started with insects. Because really? one of the things I, yeah, one of the things I uncovered looking at, um, again, going like, what do hunting and gathering peoples eat, right? In the past or today. And what I found is that entomophagy, which is the eating of insects, is this thing that it, the whole world does. Every culture right. around the world does it. We know everybody participates in it. And now we, because this thing of domesticated domestication is interesting because what happens is you create taboos against anything wild. Mm-hmm. So if it's like, if your body has the odor of an animal, ooh, it's taboo, right? Now, what I've noticed that's interesting to me is most human beings like the smell of their friends and partners B.O., yeah. right? It's not so actually, <laughs> it's this funny thing. We act like it's disgusting, but nobody actually really seems to think it's disgusting. Right, right. I'm not, t- you know, maybe really unhealthy people, whatever, but for the most part, but we are embarrassed about it because it's a reminder that we're an animal. Yeah, we really um, we both fetishize sexuality, mm-hmm. but we don't fetishize real human sexuality. We fetishize this imaginary fantasy type of sexuality, but real sexuality is hidden. We don't know how to talk to children about it. Right. And it's hard because it sure looks like a David Attenborough film when we do it. So it's like, hey, that's a reminder that we're animals, right? Anything right. that reminds us of our animal nature. And that's why it's so weird to us when we see like... If you've ever been around somebody who's 
been camping all week and they smell like a fire. Yeah. Like there's a real distinct smell when somebody's been around a fire. And sometimes you don't realize it's on you till you kind of pick up clothes you had on the night you were around a fire and you smell that. That's like the normal human smell for 300,000 years. Mm. Think about it, right? You can't go Amazing. more than a day without that fire. <laughs> yeah. But that smells very unpopular in public. Mm. as is if your hair's not right or anything that that's a reminder that you're an animal freaks people out right so yeah. when you start looking at something like eating insects that's people are going to lose their minds because it's just ew gross but not really because it's gross most people have never tried it how do they know it's gross right, just right. it's gross because it seems like a thing an animal would do right yeah so there's the, that fundamental human taboo yeah that underlies i think all of our taboos really but i had been in thailand and i had seen when i was younger and i had seen all these insects for sale on the street and then down in Mexico where it's like grasshoppers and crickets. And I thought, I'm going to just try this. So I started actually going out and catching grasshoppers and crickets and oh dragonflies gosh. and just pan frying them. Oh and my gosh. Awesome. June bugs <laughs> started doing things like that. Anyway, I just sort of slowly, I slowly built myself up from there till I was hunting squirrels and turkeys and et cetera, et cetera. The foraging part came pretty easy. Plants don't run away. And so it's a lot simpler of a thing. Um, both hunting and foraging required a lot of me seeking out teachers mm. or mentors. Yeah. You know, but it was a, a slow thing. So my diet changed at the farm stand level and at the Whole Foods level. That's how I, I initiated the shift. Because mm-hmm. um, I remember being a vegan and finding the first thing I think I got into is uh, here in the White Mountains. I know a lady who um, raises uh, cows for butter. She raises Jersey only cows, which are just the most beautiful cows. So most people think of for dairy, they think of Holsteins, which are those black and white spotted cows. By the way, when you see, this is interesting. When you see what's called piebalding or white patches on an animal that's domesticated, Mm. that is a, that is one of the physiological characteristics of domestication. Interesting. So like my dog is all uh, this. I'm looking at her now. She's this beautiful brindle of orange and browns. So she kind of like a tiger stripe, but she got a big white patch on her chest. Mm -hmm. When you see that, that's an indication of domestication. Interesting. And the more domesticated something is, the more of that you'll see till sometimes animals turn totally bright white. Yeah. I have a white pit. I have a white pit. Uh A white pit bull. He's beautiful, but he is definitely all white. That's so interesting. I didn't yeah. know Yeah. So if you can picture like how disadvantageous, except in certain environments, it would be to be that color, right? Like yeah. recently a buddy sent me a picture of a white um, albino deer in his yard. Interesting. And you're just looking, I mean, it's cool, but it's like, bummer. <laughs> that sucks for you. <laughs> you right, know, right. To be, that, to be that color. So um, anyway, those Holsteins are very domesticated cows. And because they're so domesticated, they have mutations in their casein that people are Mm. allergic to. So Uh a lot of people who are dairy intolerant are actually really only intolerant to those black and white cows, the Holsteins. Is that the A1? Correct, yeah. That's A1 milk. Okay, I just actually got some A2 milk and I have never heard about it. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, actually, let me be, in fairness, some Holsteins I think will produce a little A2 milk. Okay. Um, that's that non-allergenic milk. Jersey's much more so. Um, they will produce predominantly A2 milk. So anyway, I came across a lady who has all grass-fed cows in the clean mountains of New Hampshire, and she presses her butter in her family's traditional wooden butter molds. You know, I so one pound is like six bucks of the most <laughs> orange. And I was right after like ten years of veganism, I was eating like a a pound, not a <laughs> stick, like a pound. That's four sticks a day. Oh my gosh. You were like, I need it. 
<laughs> I'll just mix it with honey and cacao and I would eat that every day. Ooh. Seriously. I think because I was so starved for the fat soluble nutrients that are in there. Yeah. Like I said, so from there it was like, I started with dairy, started to mess with fish and chicken and eventually red meats. And each time I'd be like, well, I'm only going to have dairy. Cause I, you know, that vegan mentality, well, I'm only going to have white meat and I'm only yeah. going to do with all these rules. <laughs> One of the things that came out of that for me, and, and here's like a tip for the listeners is like, if you find yourself basing your, um, lifestyle on what you don't do or worse defining your personality or self by what you don't do mm. i think you got to check yourself a little bit mm, mm -hmm. you know life's about what you do not about what you don't do and this kind of puritanism that that's it took a lot of generations to shrug off some really intense puritanism yeah. and now we're entering into a new puritanism where there's all these things that you're not supposed to do anymore. And it's like, whoa, careful. This is dangerous territory, right? So it's like, well, who are you? Well, I'm a vegan. It's like, okay, I, now I know what you don't do, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And it's the same on the other side, the total yeah. flip. Like I'm a carnivore. Okay, now I know what you don't eat, but who are you though? Yeah, right? yeah. So that was interesting because each step along the way, I was realizing that it was a struggle for me to not have something like that. Mm. I wanted some ism that I could use to define myself. Um, That's, this is some delicate territory when you feel like you need a crutch in order to exist or have value or validity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it was, why can't I just be what I am? Why do I need some ism to help me define myself? And so going through that process of letting that go and what I've again, back to, you know, who I keep referring to as sort of the wild type human, the person pre-agricultural, Mm -hmm. whether they're living today or in the past, is that everything in the environment that could be made into food is made into food. Mm -hmm. It isn't like, oh, that's plants, oh, that's animals, that's fungi, that's algae. It's like, hey, what can we eat, right? Yeah. And yeah. the really powerful thing about it is that as everything you eat is coming from the body of a living creature, mm -hmm. and it might be a plant, it might be an animal, it might be a seaweed or in other words, an algae, but something is giving up its body or body parts for you to eat. Exactly. And that means that your diet should basically be like a Rolodex of species you know. Mm -hmm. You brought it up earlier about being in relationship with a species. So if you ask the average person in the modern industrial world about the creatures that they make their bodies from and have since they were children – they almost never could even pick out the organism if they saw it. Mm -hmm. So most people don't eat oranges, but don't know what an orange tree looks like, right? right? They eat lettuce, but couldn't identify a lettuce plant. Yeah. Um, this is scary stuff. It's so isolating. And the thing is, is when you're, it's like, what's the worst thing you can do to a human being in prison? You put them in isolation. Mm -hmm. That's worse than beating on them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's considered the worst thing that's how you torture the soul of a human being is isolation right so you start to look at the average person now we know lots of other people mm -hmm. but what we're supposed to also know is lots of other species yes those relationships are what make us feel like we're from earth yeah. like it, you, you i ask myself why are people in such a high-speed rush to get off the planet well maybe because they feel so alone here Mm -hmm. because they don't feel like they're part of the the greater community of life. And where vegans get confused is they think, well, if you're a part of that community of life, then you can't kill anything in that community. And that's actually not true. Yeah. Because when you look at everything else in that community of life, that's what they're doing too. 
Yes. You know, that's what they're doing too. And what we've come to learn only recently. So again, it's really easy to judge the past based on what we know today. In the past, it looked so barbaric that we were trying to rid our landscape of predators. We didn't know then that predators are crucial to the prey species. Right. So you hurt the gazelle by removing the lions. The gazelle has become interdependent with the lion. Both the lion needs the gazelle for food, but the gazelle needs the lion to keep their genetic material clean so that they can continue to reproduce into the distant future. Oh. And if all of a sudden you allow the weakest of the animals are still there. Now here's where human hunting differs. And this is what I think we need to be really careful of as hunters. Yeah. I'm going to include you in that because it sounds yes. like you're in the game a little bit. <laughs> I'm starting to get there. <laughs> cool. If you watch most hunters, they hunt in the opposite way that predators hunt. So the predator on the landscape does not say, I want to find the biggest, baddest, oldest gazelle with the gnarliest horns and risk my life and maybe get gored and die of an infection and hungry mm -hmm. so that I can brag to the other lions about the gazelle I got. Right. doesn't work like that. It's the, I'm going to take the weak one, the slow one, the one who doesn't pay attention well, the one who's got a physiological problem, or maybe something happened at birth that didn't come together right, and there's something slowing that animal down. I'm eating that one. Mm -hmm. And all the strongest and the fastest, those ones survive that, right? And that's how it's been all along. But now hunters come along, and they didn't used to be this way. It's modern sport hunting, which is a whole nother story but now it's come to i want to find those animals that represent the peak of genetic potential and right. use them as a trophy and and many hunters like you you brought up meat eater those guys are cool in that they they utilize those animals completely right. but they got a thing they got like a kink for the biggest rack the biggest animal I'm, and sometimes that means an animal that probably would die that year because it's so mature that it's it's not going to keep living right yeah yeah but in a lot of instances, it's more about the sort of ego story. So my point is that um, I think that uh, similarly, I was recently listening to an indigenous woman talk about um, her. She was talking about an elder from California who was describing that when um, they were tending that landscape, they believed in having four trees per acre. Mm. Now, an acre here where I live probably got 2,500 trees on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. too thick it's too dense the indigenous in north america burned that stuff back and they opened it up because it made more sense if you have four trees of full maturity on a landscape that can fruit and produce food and then animals come and now you have habitat and the people can move through there and there's this this is i don't believe that nature's best if humans leave it alone i think nature's best when humans do our job in nature which is we're sort of the gardeners of the wild Mm. that's what we see when we look around the world anywhere where there are human beings who lived pre-industrially is they took care of the landscape by being there. Mm. So similarly, we do forestry in the opposite way. We, we, and then when we try to take care of the landscape, we just let the whole thing grow like our national forests or parks where they're not even maintained. Right. This right. is like the opposite and we're doing it with hunting too. So um, this stuff gets a little confusing, but anyway, Back to what I'm saying, I think we approach it all backwards. So as a hunter today, I'm looking to be beneficial to the landscape and the community of life that I'm interacting with. And to my point earlier, I just think if you don't know other species, the earth is a lonely place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you only know other people and we're so flawed and we're so socialized, if you only know other people, the world's really confusing. And it feels like it's just a, 
a, a stage upon which the human drama unfolds. Yeah. But as soon as you're out there on the landscape, you realize there's all this other stuff going on and we can just shut up and enjoy some of that and sit back and learn from it. Yeah. There's two things that I, I'm, I pulled from that was one, the fear that people have of like, um, for example, I started on learning herbalism over this whole COVID situation. Oh, cool. And it's funny because even though it's just been me and my partner mostly that I've seen and interacted with other than Zoom calls and that kind of thing, I have felt so not lonely in this time. Mm -hmm. And I think it has a lot to do with the amount that I've been outside. I've been learning the plants. I've been being in relationship with them, learning why they're there, who they're there, like what what is out there and building those relationships. I think for me, it's been super interesting because I'm like, well, I can just go outside, be with the plants and I'm good. Mm -hmm. But then also it's funny too, that I have found as I've been learning um, to forage, learning what, um, what medicine is out there is that so many of my family and friends are terrified. Yeah. of like, they're like, well, is it poisonous? Are you sure it's this? You know, there is this intense fear about the the great outdoors. And I feel like that's another reason why people are so, find it lonely because it's not only like, oh, I don't have a relationship with it, but I'm actually afraid of what's out there, you know? I am interrupting this amazing episode to give you a quick update on Books in Yoga, the book and yoga organization that I co-founded with my dear friend Hannah. Um, Meetup 15, discussing Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, has actually been moved. So it is not until August 9th, Sunday, August 9th at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. It is completely virtual, so anywhere in the world you can join us. We will be discussing the book in the first half, and then we will have some type of yogic practice in the second half. So it's always in a really incredible meetup. We always have really amazing cutting edge conversations to really digest the literature that we're discussing. All of the meetups are sliding scale pricing, but if finances are a barrier or you're having trouble finding the book or even paying for the book, please let us know so that we can support you and create access for you. You can just shoot us an email at booksandyogarock, R-O-C, at gmail.com, and we'll be happy to make sure that you're able to come. If you're interested in joining, you can go to letsgetnaked.com slash pages slash books dash yoga or you can click the link below that I will put in the description box and come and join us. It's always a really great time. Yeah, I sometimes use this analogy. Uh, I'll say, let's imagine you you are in a town where you grew up and you know everybody Mm -hmm. and you're walking down the street and it's like, oh, hey, oh, hey, everybody's saying hi to you. You're saying hi to everybody. And you have that sense of like, I don't need to explain who everyone knows me. I know everyone. This is not a hostile place. It's friendly. I can, I know the neighbors. I can stop by anywhere. And there's this sense of belongingness. Yeah. And then if you went to a new town 
you don't know anyone. Oh, it's hard. It's like, oh man, are they, are they going to like me? Are they not going to like me? How do I meet people? Should I talk to people? Should I wait for people to approach me? All this kind of discomfort and it can feel even hostile. Yeah. I notice because I'm, I'm a, like a self-awareness and self-defense kind of minded person that mm-hmm. when I'm in an environment of people I don't know, I'm kind of keyed up. It comes from my childhood, you know, mm-hmm. I lived amongst threatening people. And so I'll be keyed up until I start talking to people. Once I get to know people, my defenses just kind of melt off of me. Right. Okay. So similarly, if you walk out into the natural world or even into your own backyard, and it's just, everything's just green. You don't know, you don't even see individual species. You don't see any plants. You know no one. And yeah. you've heard all these stories, poisoning and oh, toxic mushrooms and don't touch this and poison ivy and bears and all this stuff in your mind, right? right and right. all of these movies and books about people having these terrible experience, survival situations. Yeah. <laughs> Bear Grylls is drinking pee out of a snake skin. It's like all this crazy <laughs> stuff, right? That yeah. is in our culture. Um, it feels pretty threatening. Yeah. But now for you, like you were just describing, so let's say somebody learns even just 10 plants that are in their environment that are common. Now when you're walking down the street, it's not just green everywhere. It's like, I know that one. I know that one. I know that one. And once you not only know them, but know what they can offer to you and what you can offer back and how you become allies to one Mm -hmm. another, Mm -hmm. suddenly now you're in that town full of friends Right. And the longer you do this stuff and the more you learn, the more the natural world is, becomes this incredibly immersive, beautiful experience. And actually you start to see the sort of hostility of the world that we've created. Yes. It's almost <laughs> like the opposite thing starts to happen. So for me, it stretches out beyond that to the phenology, to the study of the calendar, because mm-hmm. for me, what I'm foraging and hunting and fishing this week is going to change in two weeks. It constantly changes, constantly different. So it's not only getting to know all these species, but getting to know what they're doing throughout the year and when I can interact with them. And that means that not only do I feel like I have all these friends around me that are non-human relations, but I also always have a thing I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, this is about to start. Oh, that flavor's coming back. Oh, we're going to get to do this again. Oh, I didn't, I want to do it better than last year. And, and I want to tell, like, I tell these species, like, I want to tell people about you. Right. You know, yeah. I want to share you with people because where a lot of people I think have been misguided by kind of modern day environmentalism, um, well-intentioned modern day environmentalism is this idea that whatever we touch, we destroy. Mm. And experientially you find out it's not true. You, it, ca- it co- certainly can be true, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not always true. It's like you can interact with a thing in such a way that actually becomes more abundant Mm-hmm. And the more, when we have a relationship with a species, we have modus to protect it. Right. But when you don't know any species, you have no real motive. All you're trying to protect is some generic environment that you don't really have an experience of. It's meaningless. And so people's values about their environment are mostly lip service, mm-hmm. because, and, and not because they're bad, but because they don't have lived experience with it. So once right. you have that, man, you become an ambassador for these yeah. plants. And I'm sure like these plants that you're talking about, it doesn't take long to fall in love with some of them, right? Mm-mm, mm-mm. I just went and harvested a whole bunch of, cause I'm just learning about wheat, weeds right now. Um, and I just harvested a whole bunch of plantain, which I'm like, I've been looking at plantain all of my life. Like it's been under my feet my entire yeah. life and didn't know that it was this incredible, like yeah. pulling out toxins and all of these things. And it's like, since I'm learning about weeds right now and then I'll go and start learning about some of the other foods and things, but 
it's like these things are around us all yeah. the time. And for me, I'm, I am a practicing anti-capitalist. And so for me, it's like, we have all of this nutrition that we can literally just walk outside of our door and have access to. And, you know, my people for specifically have live in these food deserts, like Detroit food desert, do not have access to nutrition, do not have access to these things, but I could walk outside my door and have some dandelion right there. There's nettle around, there's plantain around. Mm -hmm. So then there's an opportunity for me to supplement my diet with these incredible nutritious foods, but yet we have demonized them as like weeds, something we have to and 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 there's, uh, we make fun of people who interact with them, right? Because it feels threatening when you don't know and somebody else knows. So it's easier to just tease them about it. But it's also, that part is interesting to me too, because one of the things that's fascinating to me about um, indigenous groups around the world is the almost shocking diversity of types of people Mm. and how they've adapted to their environments. And so um, one of the things that I don't like about globalization Mm-hmm. is that we're going to lose a lot of these really cool specific adaptations, right? Because everybody eventually, a lot of the conversations that are taking place right now will become less relevant in two, 300 years because we will be basically one race and our right. adaptation will be probably, unless we change course, to the indoor, even spaceship environment. Right, yeah. So when you yeah. think about what shaped the different types of people on the planet, like black, white is this really interesting thing to me. What shaped it? Sun. <laughs> Other factors too. And, yeah, and interestingly, yeah. women are one of the, women drive um, evolution in any species, females, drive, um, adapta- drive evolution almost as much as the environment because you have natural selection. That's the environment putting pressure on something and it adapts. Mm-hmm. And then you have females choosing which mates ah. that they will actually bring forth children for. Mm-hmm. And that's called sexual selection. And so that's why you end up with these birds with just absolutely stunning but very odd feather designs where you're like, how is that beneficial in your environment? Right, right. It's not. It's that the females like that. And mm-hmm. over time, they keep selecting for the weirder, 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 bigger, <laughs> crazier. And then yeah. you get these different qualities, right? So sexual selection is, Darwin talked about it. It's mm-hmm. more important than I think a lot of people like to give credit to. It's, it's important. But regardless, my point. Yeah. Sunlight was a huge shaper, right? So if I go, now I'm Mediterranean. I'm, my people are from Sicily, but uh, let's, so let's say I'm just a white person. <laughs> Olive. Okay, so <laughs> if, I, if I go like many uh, white folks that I've met who are from Australia, mm-hmm. the amount of sun there gives them skin cancer. Mm-hmm. Conversely, heavily pigmented people who come here to Maine they can't make enough vitamin D. Me so, in Rochester, New York. <laughs> okay, so that means, because your skin is like a pair of sunglasses. Right. It uses melanin to filter out UV because your people originally came from a place with so much UV that the idea that you would ever need more didn't, didn't even exist. You needed right. less, right? right. S- but, but then white people in Northern Europe, where there was almost never any sun, they needed skin so clear that if they even got a ray of sun on like their forearm, they could make enough vitamin D for the day. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's all these different adaptations. So how, and there too, the environment, and that is good. 
Mm-hmm. Like that diversity is important. Sort of like we're having a problem with bananas right now, Cavendish bananas. So a lot of people don't realize, but most of the fruits they eat are clones. Mm. Right? So if you think of any apple you've eaten, that's the only apple of variety. Like if you like gala apples, let's say, or, or yellow delicious, they're yeah. all clones. There's only one yellow delicious and every one in the market is a genetic clone of that one. Wow. And same with bananas. They have no seeds anymore, bananas, right? Bananas right. are in nature have a lot of seeds. So we only, we grow primarily the Cavendish banana. Well, the problem is there's some diseases attacking it. Mm. And because there's a lack of genetic diversity, we might lose that banana. And so there are people out there working on breeding new bananas because we lost all, we're in the shallowest end of the banana gene pool, right? Mm. Right now, we have still all this variety of humans all adapted to these different landscapes, but because of globalization and the indoor environment, we don't need as many of those adaptations anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It brings me back to what you said before um, about the food desert, because it's really interesting to me to see people who thrive in what appear to be deserts mm. thrive, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, the mat, the, um, the Kung, um, they get called the Bushmen of the Kalahari. Mm. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? They, I don't. Um, they're in, in Africa. They speak with the click language. They're not oh. considered black people. They're, they're a different race. And they're one of the, they'll probably be the first race to be extinct, which is unfortunate. Mm. They used to be called capoid people, but I don't know mm. the proper term for them now, but, but they'll get called the San uh, is another name for them. Okay. So <clears throat> they live in a place that is like, man, you would look at it and go, it's a desert, but they've mm. thrived there for. I don't know how long, hundreds of thousands of years. Right. Or if you look at the Inuit or the Inupiat in the Arctic, where you're like, there isn't Ow. anything here, right. but there is, right? Mm. And arrived there for a long time. So I like what you just said, because it appears to be a desert of food, right? but there might actually be a lot there. It doesn't mm-hmm. take care of the problem because it's a, it's a desert for unnatural reasons and that exactly. needs to be corrected. Right. But it is fascinating <laughs> what's actually there and what, what could be accessed if we change our paradigm. And I think the other thing about it too is like when you forage in an urban environment, there's a lot of pollution mm-hmm. and that impacts the quality of what's there. Exactly. And what's cool about people getting excited about it is that that is that gives people a motivation to stop doing that. Right, stop polluting. Or to stop others from doing that. Right. Right, and so right. this is powerful stuff. I mean, and that's not just in urban environments. I mean, in rural environments, like here, the Androscoggin River, which is a, an important watershed here, always has been, but it's important to me and my friends who forage here. But the paper mills have polluted it very significantly such that you can't take the underground parts of plants that grow there mm. because they're toxic. Oh, and wow. you can't fish. They say you can eat one fish meal a year, you know, out of this river. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, you know, and it's easy to be like, oh, those paper mills as I write yeah. stuff on paper, you know, yes, what I mean? right. and purchase paper and everything. I try not to be too judgmental as being a participant, but, but I, I think that if we don't start to care about wild things, why would we really clean up the environment? Instead, what we'll do is we'll get into some gross scheme where we just sell carbon credits. Yeah. Right, we allow companies to pollute, but they bought a carbon credit for Antarctica or whatever, and, and the environmentalists in the city are happy because they don't know. They right. go, "Oh, that's good." They offset their credits; that's fine, and and everybody thinks it's okay. And meanwhile, we lose more and more of our actual resources. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That's really, really huge. And it's interesting too, like being among the liberal population right now, who we're you know we're all rah rah 
sustainability, rah-rah, diversity, all of that, but we don't have the knowledge and the relationship to what's actually out there. We're just looking at Instagram and looking at a meme to like oh, well, inform that, us. That makes me want to ask you. So, so then obviously when you decided, hey, I want to look at hunting as a lifestyle, you, it's not like you go to your liberal friends and go like, hey, get me started, right? So no, <laughs> mostly that's a very conservative world very conservative world that's changing and it's changing dramatically and fast, but mm -hmm. still that's the, you know, you've got the, some forward thinking people are the iceberg sticking out of the water, but most of it's a, a conservative world. So please tell me about that experience. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Cause I have, I identify as a radical. That's kind of my political affiliation. Um, and this is not, you're I a mean, pretty cool radical. Cause um, <laughs> a lot of, you know, having been one in the past, and uh, see, knowing a lot of them today, it's, um, it's not always easy to have a conversation where you feel like you can speak freely. Yeah, no. I, so that's, I guess, at the cornerstone for me is like wanting, hmm, okay, how do I organize my thoughts here? So I struggle with ever being in a bubble. Um, that's just not how I enjoy being and living about in the world. So, and I also fear the, the soul of our planet and our society. If we continue to silo each other off and be yeah. like, you're over here and you're bad and I'm over here and I'm good. And what I believe is the right thing. And what you believe is the bad thing. I struggle with that. And I think I struggle with it because I, I'm so... I'm a Capricorn, so I don't know if you know anything about astrology. Uh, I know quite a lot about it, yeah. Okay, good. So I'm a Capricorn. I'm very, very fixed. I historically am very like what I say goes, what I believe is right, and that's it. And so, but as I grow up, I'm like, well, you know, there's there's diversity. And so I struggle with with the fact that like as we continue to evolve, we'll continue to silo ourselves and information will become so much smaller. Um, I say all of that to say that one of the reasons why I got into hunting, it, there's so many reasons and we talked a little bit about them, but one of them is because I wanted to be among conservatives in a way. I wanted to mm -hmm. like understand them and be in relationship with them because there's where I stand, I, I'm not really um, exposed to them. Mm -hmm. And so I feel you like- You have to do work to get exposed to- I mean, often you have to actually do something to get outside of those silos you're talking about. Exactly. So hunting for me is partially and still being safe. So I struggle with the race thing because there's a stereotype of hunters and conservatives of being being racist or whatever. And so I want to be oh, safe. I hate even hearing that. I, I know. Hate hearing that. I, know. I know that that is the stereotype, <laughs> yeah. but I don't think it's actually reflects the real reality, but I understand, I definitely understand the stereotype. Yeah, there's a stereotype and part of, I just, I don't know, as being a black woman, there's all types of stereotypes about me that I want people to know is not true, yeah, you know? Of course, right. And so I feel like I'm trying to give other people the benefit of that doubt as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so um, part of it is an experiment in like being among humans that are not in my yeah. inner circle. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's one of the reasons why I got into it and wanting to continue. And I know that that's, it's painful because I am very pro-Black. I am very radical in that belief. Like I, I'm all about Black liberation and believing that Black liberation is the catalyst for freedom for every single human on this planet. So, yeah. So I'm going to 
figure out how to be like a black female woman hunter. Yeah, <laughs> which we need which we need more of. And I can't speak for cuz I'm not a lifelong hunter, but what I can say that um passionate hunters first of all are way better people than a lot of folks imagine. Mm-hmm. But also they care so much about this and they know that it's dying and going away and they are very eager to share it. Yeah. And they are very open-minded about who they share it with. Yeah. And so I think that as time goes on, you'll find that you're probably embraced beyond what you expected. And mm. you might be embraced more than I'll be embraced mm. because there's a desire for diversity there right now, which is, which I can't speak to the past, but I'll say right now is like, um, in my, um, like for instance, as a woman, you know, like that's the fasting fastest growing demographic in hunting. I keep hearing and that. In the in Maine, our whole Department of Inland Fish and Wildlife is essentially run all by women. Now we have the first woman commissioner, and they started up a podcast, and uh, I got to be on it recently. But I'm looking through the podcast. I'm like, wait, there's no guys. Like it's all <laughs> women. like, well, come on, like you know, got me a guy on here sometime. Right. Uh, but so you know, that's changing. And then I think there's been a lot of questions. For, I've had a lot of questions about why hunting is so predominantly white. Um, mm. I mean, obviously, a lot of it's historical. But I'm curious your thoughts about that and then like where you see that heading because I think that's going to change too. That's so interesting um, because when I said like, okay, I'm hunting to my parents, right? My mom was like, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> okay. And then my stepdad- Like you came goes, home in a MAGA hat or something. Exactly. That's exactly what it felt like for her. That's exactly what it felt like. Um, but like uh, I told my, my stepdad, I was like, yeah, because I don't know any black people that hunt. He's like, wait, hold on. He's like, my uncles have been hunting forever. He grew up in- um, Northern Michigan. Um, and, you know, I talked to my cousin who has family in Louisiana. She's like, yeah, my ancestors hunted. And I'm like, this is just not, this is just not information I've been privy to. Right. Because my grandmother grew up on a farm and my, you know, so that, that was kind of the lineage of, of food in relationship to the food and to the earth. So I grew up with her gardening in, um, like in Detroit, in her backyard. So that's my kind of relationship. But I didn't have like direct family members who had this history of hunting. So I've heard you say before, I think that like hunting is not like a racial thing. Like, you know, it's like not like only one person do it. This is a common history because what else would you going to do? But also, could I, could I add to it? And I'm, I feel so delicate talking about these things because just given the climate, but it's like, if you, Look at the humans through the lens of domestication. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take long to realize that that white people have been domesticated the longest. Mm-hmm. The, the longest. That makes sense. The most out of touch with their human wildness because they've been living in hyper-stratified societies the longest. Probably right, right after them would be Asian populations. China right. has just been there a very long time. Yeah. Um, Historically, people who come from Africa would have had a relationship with the natural world, like the one we've been talking about. Absolutely. 500 years ago. Yes. Where it's more like 5,000 to 10,000 years ago. So I wonder sometimes if, what are the forces that have made so many, now I, I think that it's, you can't, it's hard to talk about any group of people like they are the representative of their race around the world, yeah, right? So yeah, I'm just yeah. talking about in North America. Mm-hmm. But I've been wondering what are the forces that have made black people here feel like they're not into nature? 
Mm. I mean, I I think I know the answer. (laughs) Please, I would really like to hear the answer for it. Yeah, no, so it's colonialism. It It is coming into a system of these white folks who have domesticated themselves and set the standard for what being a human should look like. And so in order for us to get ahead in the world post-slavery, we had to assimilate as closely to this white culture and this white supremacist culture as possible. So my, and I don't know the answer, but like my (laughs) expectation of that, my thought of that answer is that like, it's what we've had to do. And then also another thing is that when we were working the land, our relationship to the earth was enslaved. Slavery, yeah. We did not have a, a, a choice for it. So that, like, I mean, for a lot of people, my grandmother used to say all the time, she used to pray because she hated snakes and she grew up in um, Little Rock, well, not outside of Little Rock, Arkansas, um, Damascus, Arkansas, specifically. And um, she grew up on a farm and she used to pray to God while she was on the farm to get her off of that farm. She used to right. pray every day. She said, I wanted to get off of the farm. And uh, she's like, I don't want to do this hard labor. I don't want to do this. Because if you think about it, my ancestors here on America, that's what they did in slaves. So like for her, it was like, I want to move to the big city. Reject all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I want to get some of the cream off the top of this culture that we work so hard for. Right. Exactly. I think what's interesting about that is when I started to travel around the world, I noticed that I would go to places that I had romantically imagined were still like they would have been a thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. but weren't Mm -hmm. anymore. And I would get there and see that they were really trying to be like America. And I wanted to say like, no, trust me, it's soulless. You don't, you don't want to embrace all of this just heedless consumerism. Right. But they would be in the stage of, no, it matters what labels on my jeans. It matters what my shoes are. It matters exactly. all these things, like caring yeah. about all these things. That, and I would be like, that's so interesting because we already did that here. Right. And we're getting away from that now and getting yeah. back to nature and organic and all of this. And yeah. you guys were just organic and natural, but now yes. you want this. And, <laughs> oh, no. You know, you know, kind of picture what I'm saying. So yeah. I sort of wonder if it's that because I wish that here's the thing is it's like black people in America, it's so interesting where we're at because this is, this country belongs to Americans, to black Mm -hmm. people who help Mm -hmm. build it. Right. And Mm -hmm. for instance, the amount of public land that the black people in North America own, but Mm -hmm. don't necessarily know that they own it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's crazy to me. It's like every national park, Every national forest, all your state parks and state forests, all that stuff is not just like you're allowed to go there. You are the owner of that land. And right. if you want to go to the national forest and hunt or fish or cut firewood or hike or whatever it is you want to do, that's your land. So I hear a lot of times about how, because I really struggled with people telling me a couple of years ago, hey, it's pr- you're privileged to be able to do this. And I'd be mm-hmm. like, what? I really like trying to get my head around that idea. Mm-hmm. Because I, because people saying, hey, not everybody has access to the land. And it's like that, I get that. But also I want people to know they have access to more than they know. Mm-hmm. That's really empowering. Like yeah. go visit your land because you yeah. got land. You got a lot of land. Yeah. I think what it's more access to is the information. Yeah, absolutely. It's the knowledge. Yeah. It is the feeling accepted. Because there's a whole like, I've grown, I've grown up around white people. So I grew up in the city of Detroit, but I went to all white schools my entire life. And so I grew up around white people and like, I don't have a fear of walking among white folks. A lot of black people do. Like it's really a fear. And I mean, it's, it's historical, it's historical trauma. 
And so um, it's, it's, it's not an access to the information. And I think it's not an access to feeling comfortable among the people who we perceive has the information and it's kind of like the gatekeepers of this stuff. So what's happened for you? Have you got to interact with hunters and how have you felt received by that? I'm really curious because here again, the other thing is that we, the conversation right now in the U S does not differentiate well between the North and the South. Mm. And I think there's a significant cultural difference. Mm -hmm. So until I went to the South, I didn't understand because there's two things that are are different. Like one is that there are a lot, there are a lot more white people and a lot less people of color in the North, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, much, you know, less when you go urban, but when you're rural, it's mostly white people here. Exactly. But we were also fighting and dying in the civil war over slavery as at least one of the main issues. And really fought against that. So that's in the culture in the North, but Mm -hmm. in the South, it's like you go down there, it's like, oh, this is a whole different landscape, a very different place. So I'm also curious like where, because I went and hunted in the South uh, for bears once. And I remember white dude giving us a pep talk the night before saying stuff like, now I don't want to see any racism out of you boys tomorrow because there are going to be some black boys hunting with us. And I was like... (laughs) I remember being like, oh, he doesn't know that what he's saying sounds like the kind of racist that he's worried that we're going to be from the That's North. hilarious. Why are you even telling me this? I didn't even understand. It took me a while. And then yeah. when we hunted, it was like, these were the black hunters. These were the white hunters. And yeah. it was like so segregated. Yeah. And neither side, and I mostly hung out with the, all those black dudes because they, <laughs> they thought I was like hilarious, right? They just thought, because I didn't fit in with these guys at all, you know? Right, 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 right. Um, but I saw like, oh, these are totally different hunting cultures mm-hmm. side by side. Yeah. But up here in the north, I feel like it's really different. Like you would just be embraced here. So, all right, that's a long preamble. I really want to hear what yeah. you experience. Yeah, so I think because of the lack of diversity in the north, what happens again is these silos. Is that if you're not, like you just said, like about the species, if you're not in relationship with something, you can't know it, right? And I think that's what happens a lot in the north is that like, we just see what we see on TV and we don't really know the people that we live around. Um, but my specific experience, it's been limited because I just went and got my license. And so that was, thank you. Um, me and my partner did it together. My partner is also black, dark skin male with dreads as well. And so we actually went down past Corning, New York. So that's South of Rochester. So middle New York. And, um, there was like one mixed kid there with their parents and we were the only other black people in the room, obviously. And we're in very, very rural New York. How many people? Um, 25. Yeah. That's yeah. a, that's a pretty, I mean, that's a good example of what we're talking about. Yeah. So we were there and like, I didn't, I mean, rural folks are pretty like friendly, like ridiculously friendly anyway. So everyone was really nice and everything, but they're, always feels a tension. There's always feels like there's a tension there, right? Of not wanting to say the wrong thing, not really knowing how to approach it. You know, it's like, I'm just a human here. Like you can just be a human with me. Um, and I don't know if it was coming from us or if it was coming from them. Or it was I think it's, I think it's both because especially now everyone. it's also that fear of I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm yeah. going to trip up. I'm going to offend someone. Yeah. So it's, it's unfortunate to imagine <laughs> 
because it's neat to hear from you what your concerns are because no one, I don't know that. So it's neat right. to hear that, you know, yeah. they'll probably it's, both sides feel like tension and both would like it to go away and just be able to be humans. It's hard because it's like when I told my family though, so this is to be very, this is very blunt, like what it looks like to be black in America, in America is like when I told my family that we were going to do this, my my mom and like my aunts were like, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be out there. You're talking about white men with guns. You don't know. Like, no. like literally because really? it's, yes, because my mom grew up in the civil rights era. She grew yeah. up in a, in a world that she couldn't even go to the grocery store with white folks. Wow. Yeah. So there's a very different experience. And like, she's like, you, you know, you don't know what you come from because you've been around these white folks all, all your life. Right, right. And so it's it's interesting because there is a fear and a protection that comes from black folks of being like this is our history and we have to protect ourselves in this yeah, way. Of course. But I think that what happens is that we be I mean then you're like terrified going and being with other humans and not mm-hmm. knowing how to interact and then they're terrified in in response but my actual licensing was fine. There was definitely tension, but what was interesting once we, we But were just cult, no tension at the at the licensing level. You mean at the in the classroom. Yeah, just in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. And it wasn't tension as in it was bad. It was just like, you know, how it feels weird. It felt out of place there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and meaning we were out of place. Um, and then we go to the sportsman warehouse af- right afterwards because we're yeah. so excited. That's like the outfitting place. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we go there afterwards back in Rochester and um we're just talking to people because my boyfriend he talks a lot and he's super friendly so we're just talking and wanting to get to know people and we met two hunters young who didn't have family that hunted and so we're just asking their questions like how did you get into it what did you learn blah 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 and one of the guys was like you know so how was kind of he was like so how was it being black like what you know that kind of thing and so we're talking about it and he shares he's like yeah I've heard some crazy things like just being white in these spaces I've heard guys say really really racist stuff and so he's like I know why you guys have hesitation it's just it's hard because that is a level of the culture and yeah. so it, it's interesting going to be there like I'm always going to protect myself at the end of the day and never going to put myself in situations I don't feel comfortable but I want to cross barriers like I just don't yeah. like I'm not a fan of saying I just I'm going to dismiss all of these people this, this is your right these are your rights though too like every American has this right to like, what's so cool to me, and I'm sure you know this with animals on the landscape is you own them in trust with everyone in your state. Mm -hmm. So as a resident of your state, you own in part every animal on that landscape and you have Mm -hmm. every right to interact. And I'm glad that you pushed through that discomfort because that's has to happen. And while it would be awesome if there was some better way to get that to move more quickly, right. it's going to take people because you got to have an interest in it, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think that the general, there's a generation that is dying away right now. And there is a new generation coming into it. And that generation is so intersectional that I just can't see how it's not going to have a major face change. And one of the things that I've noticed recently is how quickly that happens. Mm. And I'll say it with, with women in the hunting space, it's only been in the last couple of years where you get a hunting magazine and you flip through and you're like, half of these ads are pictures of women. And it never was like that before. It's yeah. quite, it was quite strange to me at first, 
because I'd be like, where are all these women who are hunting? But now I'm meeting them. That is, a, it's happening, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so similarly, like, I just think that the hunting culture is going to change. And what's most important to me is that, see, I feel like if hunting and foraging were to just die away, the most important relationship of humans to their natural planet disappears. Like I can't, that can't happen. Mm -hmm. And like we were starting on before hunting isn't a white person thing, but it's, it's kind of become one, I guess, but it certainly isn't one. And in England, you know, you don't own the game and trust with the people there. It's owned by the landowner which is, mm-hmm. you can imagine the disadvantages of that. If you want to hunt, you need to be a landowner or have relationships with a landowner. It's a very colonialist kind of a system. Absolutely. Whereas here, despite the past in the United States, every American citizen has the same rights here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what like it makes me glad that you're like, I'm going to go exercise those rights. Cause like we were just saying, if you don't, no one's going to like grab you by the hand and pull you into it. Right. You got to exercise them, but they're yours, you know? And I just, I really hope it changes. And for me, it's not just changes in, you know, at the, I, I guess at the identity level, but as much as it's like, there's a lot of overhaul that needs to happen in the hunting world in practices and in yeah. ethos and in relationship to the animals and relationship to the land, you know? Cause like I was saying earlier in, we're right now coming like face to face with all of these racial issues. I mean, we've, there's been waves of it, obviously. Right. Right. right but we're right. in a big one right now. Mm-hmm. And this not like, this is the only issue left to deal with in the world. Right. right? This is yeah. one of the issues yeah. and our relationship to animals. And then also our relationship down the road, you can just see where it's headed. Mm-hmm. You see where it's headed. It's like it's heading towards us having to really look at the rights of all living things Absolutely. and the relationship of humans to all living things. Right. And so a lot of the way we do things has to change and we need a new cadre of people coming into it. So, mm-hmm. and just so you know, like you guys come hunt here anytime. I would love that. And, and like would love to, to not only to hunt with you, but like I'm, I want, I definitely think that like I would like to know about what you're talking about because, man, this is like news for me. Yeah. It makes sense, but I haven't ever had to think about it. It's really cool to hear, but I don't think you would run into it here. I, now, this is, well, actually, let me just say that. I think that there, there would be people who would be like, well, really? Because of those stereotypes. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Stereotypes. Yeah. And, sometimes, and stereotypes aren't always based on just mythology. They're yeah. based on, you know, if 80% of any group does a thing, it kind of, it's like a stereotype. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily represent everybody, right? So yeah. if you step out of a stereotype, because you, you were just mentioning it, but it's like you also have to deal with people from inside the black community and their opinions about yeah. what you're supposed to do as a black person, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting too, because I think, especially young black folks, because there's a huge push towards learning the land, learning how to cultivate the land, owning land. There's a push from Uh, my peers around that because that was stuff we did not have access to and our parents did not have access to. Mm -hmm. And so another one of the reasons, many of the reasons why I wanted to start hunting is I was like, this could be a way, a representation thing. Like if I start hunting, then maybe some of my friends will start hunting and then we'll start to learn these skills and they won't die within our community. Um, But yeah, you definitely get some, and I don't know if it's stigma. You just kind of get like, what? You doing what? Mm -hmm. 
you're going to do what with a gun? What? That's kind of the reaction for people. And then it's also the safety of being among who were you doing it with. So when you say that, I want to make sure I understand that part of the safety. Yeah. Can you articulate that? Because when I hear it, I'm like, what is she talking about? Like as if yeah. somebody would turn a gun on you or something? Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, there's oh just in the last month, we have, there's been black folks hanging on trees. Like in the last month, we've had found five black folks that have hung on trees. Not we, I haven't found nobody. You mean like, like news stories of that actually of lynchings and stuff? Yes. Yes. I haven't seen yes. anything about that. Yeah. 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 Five. And they, I mean, they haven't really been getting the do inner like stuff. I mean, yeah, a couple I of understand. them were, a couple of them were actually, um, like said as, as uh, suicides, but the family says there was okay. no signs. There was no okay. relationship to that. But it's um, like new silos too, right? There's new silos too. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think that there's this side thing, and this isn't really what we're here to talk about, but you know, we have this Good second stuff. amendment and that's another thing that I would, I really want to see black people exercising Same. more of, um, I feel you like know. I'm going to get excommunicated. Ex well, same, same, but you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's like, well, there's, there's, you know what the thing is, is we run into this issue of like, what's the, um, what's the perfect ideal? Yeah. And then what's the world you actually live in? Right. Yeah. Like in an ideal yeah. world, I would like not to have a car that pollutes the environment. I'm, I just don't live in that world yet. And I'm priced out of these Teslas. Right. You know right. what I mean? Right. I'm not there. So <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so the reality is what the reality is. Mm -hmm. Like there are as many guns in the United States as humans in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And there is no law that can be made that can undo that. Yeah. Right? And what I would just, as somebody in the Second Amendment community, because I hunt and all of that and because mm -hmm. I shoot, it would, I just think that, because I've been noticing a lot more people of color in the, at the range in, in the gun shops. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably got a very similar illusionary barrier to entry yeah. an assumption that I won't be welcome here an assumption that I'm going to be met with resistance and right. then like, and then realizing that, cause I think the hunting world and the second amendment world outside of your outlier scumbag people, mm -hmm. right. Which we'll find in any community, but like we, for sure we have some of those and, and yeah. then obviously the stigma that there's a lot of those people, but I think there's less than people think mostly we're so passionate about those pursuits we just don't, we don't care if it's a man or a woman or they're black or they're white or whatever. Right, right. It's just like, please, like we need more people to exercise these rights. And, yeah. and so that feeling of not being safe mm -hmm. is like, well, you need a gun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and you know, what's interesting. So when um, George Floyd was murdered, um, me and my partner went to the sportsman shop because he was like, I want to see if the gun that we want is still there because we were waiting on unemployment, we got the unemployment, you know, that whole thing. So we were going to use some of the unemployment money to buy our, our gun for hunting. And so he went and he wanted to see if it was there because he heard that like gun, gun, um, guns were selling, right? Like, yeah, crazy. selling, but he went in and he came back out and he's like, the line was out of the department and around the store. And most of them were people of color. Most of them were people of color in line getting guns. And I think that that, it's an, it, like the gun situation. I know it's a painful, painful, painful conversation for a lot of people. Um, but I think it's one that we need to bring nuance to. Um, and I know it's one for me. I've always, I have not always been pro gun. I remember the first time I saw a gun in my home, it was my grandfather's old gun. 
and I freaked out. Like I completely started shaking this whole thing because I didn't know how to use a gun or whatever. Yeah. Um, my mom was the first one to like start getting, she got a gun, she got trained. She has a, she's actually has to renew her carry, her license to carry. Um, and so she's like, you need to learn how to do this. You, this is something that you need to know for your safety. And I was so resistant to it until I started learning more about the Second Amendment. I started learning more about this hunting space. And then I was like, oh, well, I don't know. I, I believe in exercising my rights. I believe in my right to um, be able to have firearms. I do. Now, do I believe that our laws can have some changes and some reform? Yes. And I'm usually not a reform person, but I believe that gun laws can definitely use some reform. But um, not having access to one, I, I am personally not, not for and, it, and it's like, what's interesting to me, I've thought a lot about this topic, because when you look at the big picture of human history, weapons are a pretty big part of every human sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Not for interpersonal violence, because we also use them to hunt and to sharpen sticks or whatever it is. Like they're part yeah. of who we are, right? The reason we wave to each other like this is to say, hey, there is no weapon in my right hand. Right, you know, right. this is like very fundamental to being human. And the gun thing, now, if I often I like to pose this question to people it's like if there was a button you could push, I'm picture <laughs> the button being red all the guns vaporize on the planet and none can ever be built again. And we have to go back to archery and edged tools. Yeah. Might push that button. Yeah. Okay. But I, there is no such button. And the, the problem is that it isn't really about guns. I don't think most people wouldn't be like, okay, I I don't want you to carry a gun anymore, but I don't mind if you carry a sword. They're going to be like, well, I don't want you to carry a sword either. It's like, well, I carry a couple of knives, you know, hidden on my body. Like, no, actually the truth is I don't want you to have lethal, the lethal force option. Exactly. Now, the thing is, is that anybody who's been part of, of real violence knows that real violence takes place in extremely fast, unexpected ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a 911 call is like a, a three minute, 15, depends where you are. It's not, I've, I live in a rural environment where it can take a long time. Yeah. Somebody's in your house, killing you, raping you, taking all your shit before, long before you can get police there, right? So right. having a weapon is just to me like an act of sovereignty. Mm-hmm. What I don't like the idea of is there being like charges between groups on this. Yeah. Because to me, the idea is because there are people of every persuasion Mm -hmm. that are um sociopathic yeah you know and the idea that weapons are about um fighting each other is like no 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 it's to stop criminal activity from taking place the other thing i want to say now the mistake of the constitution and the biggest mistake in america is that it was not afforded to all people all always right Um, yeah but the idea of it is really cool that your second amendment right comes from god not from (laughs) the government it mm-hmm. comes from our creator. It comes from your innate humanness, but it's not something the government allows you to have. Yeah. Just like the ability to speak freely, free speech. It doesn't come from somebody telling you you can. Right, it, right. It, you are endowed with it mm-hmm. by your creator is the idea. Um, I think that's a neat thing where it's like the, because it's really the first time in history where it's not your government that lets you do something. So Right. What I would like to see is more people, before we start talking about getting rid of all these rights, it'd be cool to see everybody exercise them. Because yeah. once you exercise them, you might be less likely to want to get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. And I, and I know that gun safety is like the thing. It's like, you know, we don't want people to be able to go into our schools and, and do things. But so I'm an abolitionist. And for what, what that really means is that we need to change our entire justice system so that it is one of healing rather than harm. And so um, I'm interested to know, like, to, as we move forward, how this Second Amendment stuff kind of goes into this idea. Because, I mean, in my political views, like, the police is not, they're not a tool for, for safety. They're a tool for, yeah. tool for harm. Uh, but, but, like, the Second Amendment is there to protect you from your government. Exactly. Not for hunting, not for sporting, and not even for shooting a scumbag who's trying to rape you. Right. It's for stopping your government from being able to take your rights. And the idea is the government is really only supposed to protect your rights. Exactly. So when they stop protecting your rights, the people need to be armed was the idea. Yes. So unfortunately, yeah. it's been turned into this symbol. And you brought it up before. It's like, what I most want to see for everybody is that when they see a firearm, like when I see a screwdriver, mm-hmm. I think that's for turning a screw. Right. You know what I mean? I don't get like, <laughs> oh my God, I don't shake or freak out or anything. Yeah. I don't yeah. feel like hide the kids. Like, it's a tool. Now, I know it's not a one-to-one because you can kill someone with a car, but a car is not for that, right? Right. A gun doesn't right. have any other job. It doesn't also like, you know, it's not a gadget otherwise. Right. Job with a specific tool, lethal force. Mm-hmm. And it's become such a symbol that people are afraid of it and don't know anything about it. And what I just wish is that everybody understood them, how they work, mm-hmm. how difficult they are to operate, and therefore how hard they are to be accurate with. Because once people know that, they're like way less scary to be mm-hmm. around. You're like... I mean, most of the people I see handling them, I go like, that. you know how to hold that thing. Um, less scary to me and just starts to be like a neutral tool. And yeah. then when that tool is the tool by which you feed yourself and your family, this whole conversation starts to change. Because yeah. for me, it's like I feed myself, my wife, and my dog mm-hmm. with my firearms. Yeah. <laughs> people start talking about them going away. It's like, whoa, you don't even, nobody's even talking about my lifestyle like do i not matter does my lifestyle not matter yeah. and um this is important stuff like yeah. you know what if i lived in alaska mm-hmm. right where i have like grizzly bears and you know and i have to feed myself like this stuff's it's not so simple we're making it into a human on human violence issue yeah, but it's actually yeah. what about no one ever wants to talk about this idea that it's for protecting you from your government but like as you've brought up and we've been talking about, yeah. there's a whole community of people here who needed protection from their government and didn't have it. So I want to see that right get, get, get exercised and people to realize they have access. And I also don't like the idea where we ban them or create so many controls on them that people end up who aren't criminals end yeah. up committing criminal acts in order to feel safe, mm. in order to have one. And it's illegal. And, and, you know, if you're in a place where you feel like you need one, if you're a woman being stalked, if yeah. you have a violent ex who's banging on your door, right, it's like right. the idea that you have to wait 10 days to get one is like, oh man, it's kind of weird. So yeah, you know, I think this conversation, like you said, it's very nuanced and very bad. Yeah, I love, that was exactly the whole like against your government thing is like actually what I, what sold me a hundred percent on the gun, on the gun thing, mm-hmm. because I'm like, we think that we are beholden to our government. We think we are completely under their reign. And, um, you know, our founding fathers had some shit fucked up, but they had some things that were pretty great. And I think one of the things was, was this, the second amendment, right? That like, you need to have the power to overthrow your government. And Mm -hmm. I think we, 
that's not something that comes into the conversation Mm -hmm. because I also think that we feel so disenfranchised to our own freedom that, um, that it doesn't even cross our mind. In a long, slow battle with a boa constrictor. And every time you exhale, that thing tightens up a little more. Mm. And every time we yield any of our rights, it tightens more and it tightens more till you get into a position where your government no longer works for you. You work for your government. Yeah. Um, the problem is that this constitution was set up with the idea that everybody would pay attention. Yeah. And yeah. Now people aren't paying attention and that's the problem. So it starts to become its own thing. But yeah. Anyway, I know we've kind of ranged, ranged really far from where we were, but like, I, I just, the idea of people exercising all of their amendments, all of their, you know, the bill of rights really yeah. starting to, I think there are a lot of people and it's not just a, a racial thing, but there are a lot of people in the United States who don't realize how much freedom they have right now, mm-hmm. how much they actually have when you look around the world. You know, for instance, what's going on in, in communist, the Communist Party of China or what's going on in uh, Venezuela or what's going on in North Korea mm-hmm. or, I mean, so many places in the world where you see like human beings aren't even allowed to really communicate with the outside world in some instances. Yeah. We have a tremendous amount of freedom. We have problems, mostly problems from the past that have not been rectified and so they exactly. linger today. Mm-hmm. But we also have some really good stuff and there's like very little conversation about the good stuff that goes on here. And um, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of us are really, this is just a new generation now. That's the yeah. thing that's exciting. And yeah. so much of what we're fighting against is is going to be gone really soon. I hope so. I mean, as, as long as yeah. we don't keep bringing it with us, that's the issue. I, we have to let it go. We have to imagine My favorite thing about um, Black feminist thought is this idea of imagining the life and the world that we want to be and live in. And so um, I think that that's really our task right now is to say, like, what do we want? How do we want to live? How do we want to interact with each other in the earth? Like, that's like, that's the cornerstone of this moment to me. Yeah. I don't know what this is so cheesy of me to say this, but like, (laughs) I really, whenever things get really crazy, I like to watch what little Wayne says. (laughs) Because because he constantly talks about this thing of, um, he's like, I don't know. He's like the generation that I'm talking to, they don't care about race. They don't care mm. about, they, they just, they're not these people. Mm-hmm. Like the, the generation come up is not, they're not bringing that stuff. In many cases, they don't even, they can't even get their head around yeah. a lot of the oppressive stuff that has existed in the past. And so it's like, I just think that there's the new generation is going to be really different. A lot of the borders and boundaries around who can do what is like dissolving and yeah. shifting really fast. And I think it's like when we look at the older generation, it's like, oh man, there's a lot of problems. When we look at the younger generation, we're like, oh wow, they're, they're like not going to bring a lot of that baggage. In fact, they're going to be on us really hard about our baggage. Right. We're going to hear about it from them, you know? My only pushback with that is that I don't want, I don't think we lose our history. We can't lose where we've been. We have to know, we have to move forward from a place of knowledge rather than a place of like, you know, like colorblindness. Like I don't, I like being black, you know, and that, that feels good for me. And so I don't want it to be a, um, a thing of, it doesn't matter. Like my race doesn't matter because it does, it does every day, but like it shouldn't, change anything like it doesn't change that's so interesting because that now we're talking about globalization which is Mm -hmm. right like let's if we get outside of the u.s politics right now we are going to lose all the races yeah i mean it's true it's It's, true it's happening and every time like like for instance 
this is a tough one because you don't want to segregate. Mm-mm. Like if we wanted to preserve the races, we'd have to say like, well, no more interracial relationships, which That's we fought we so hard to have. Exactly, exactly. Right? But yeah. then those children who interestingly, here's when you look at domestication, right? It's like, to me, what's more beautiful than a purebred dog is, is a dog that comes out of kind of random Mm. matings Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you get healthier dogs when when you segregate breeds which are the word breed in science is equivalent to race it means the same thing Mm. so you take dog breeds each dog breed is a race so if you don't mix them you end up with eventually lots of health problems Mm. specific Mm. to the breed that breed gets cancer that breeds hip fall apart whatever you start to mix them up you get these really healthy genetic you get more genetic depth in an animal, right? So it's like, I think we need that. You look at the children of interracial couples and I mean, it's just hard not to be like, in (laughs) every instance, you're like, that kid has the best of both. Yeah, yeah. So you want that, but then if you do that indefinitely, we lose all of the cool individual races. It's an interesting thing. I think it's just literally about getting us to a point of being like, this is okay, this is okay, and this is as well. Like, it is yeah, okay yeah. to be on both opposite spectrums. It is okay to be in the middle. It's okay to be everywhere in yeah. between. Like, yeah. it, it's about not erasing or saying you can't mix. It's about saying, like, we're all beautiful. Like, we're all yeah. good. And, like, we, our differences make us better. Because if I just, you know, my mom always used to say, if, like, we all were the same, we'd have nothing to learn. Mm-hmm. Like, so, like, here is the opportunity to learn. I don't know. That's my thought on it. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Where, I don't have, I wish, like, it doesn't matter what I think anyway, because it's just, it's like a, it's, there's so much momentum to the world right now, right? It's just doing what it's doing. But I think, like, I think the next generation is going to have a lot more love for yeah. a lot more kinds of people. And I think that the reasons for a lot of the stuff that we're trying to change right now, if you follow them back, man, there is some ancient stuff. And momentum of ancient stuff. Inertia is powerful. So I don't know. It's changing. Absolutely. But anyway, the point is like, I hope that, (laughs) I hope that um, I want to see those stigmas go away that you were talking about. I I want to, to see more people of, of color in the natural environment and participating more because I, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me at first. And now when I see, it's like, if someone's a black hunter, very often that is like their thing because it's unique and it would be cool for that not to seem unique anymore. Yes, like that yeah. doesn't make any sense. That's dumb. Yeah. Yes. Right. Like yep, the idea absolutely. of like getting your food, like how is this a racial issue at all? Like how right. you get your food. Right. It's like, right. and so uh, I think that we need people of every race to have redeveloped relationships to the natural world. Right. Yes. And, and it's, <laughs> It's a very weak position to be in without a relationship to the natural world, especially moving forward into such an unknown reality. It's like that tether is important. It's really important. Yeah. Absolutely. I love, I love that we had this conversation because I think it's so necessary. Um, I'm really refreshed, actually. Good. That's so good. <laughs> um, it wasn't too scary. I know this, the racial conversation is always a little... Ooh, uh, it's my it favorite. right now. I didn't used to feel like that, but right now it, it does feel like that. But I mean... I, I think like um, I appreciate you not villainizing what I'm saying or my perspective, you know, yeah. just letting me say what I have to say and uh, accepting that I don't like, cause I don't have a real strong position on it. I just, 
trying to like understand the changing landscape and trying to make space for everyone and yeah. everybody's needs, you know, but there's like a huge diversity of ideas. Oh yeah. And I don't want to lose diversity of ideas either. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's the thing. yeah. So, so it's like, how do you, how do you have balance at all? Exactly. It's exactly. like, well, my, my wife would say, it's like, you just have a good heart and you keep your heart mm. open and you keep your heart clean mm-hmm. and you don't let shadows get into your heart, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And it, yeah. and there's so much noise. It's like making sure that your light stays bright and clear and clean. Yeah. And for me, that's the thing is when I'm navigating the world, I'm not navigating based on all this identity politics. Right. I'm looking for people who I can feel the goodness emanating from their heart. And I find that predominantly in children, <laughs> almost pre- like predominantly in children. And yeah. then it seems almost a little bit rare in adults. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, adults can be really good at pretending. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of fakeness out there in the like happy new agey world or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But when you find people with a good heart, you'll find that they're of all different, they're all different types of people. Yeah. And I'm just way more drawn to that than what somebody's saying or talking about or, or whatever, you know, and I, and I would rather hang out with people who don't share my same hobbies, but have a good heart yeah. than somebody who does what I do, but is hard to be around. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we close out, I do want to just for all of these new black, brown folk that are going to be <laughs> wanting to, to go hunt, what is your like little tips? And I know there are so like listeners, please, please, please go Listen to Rewild Yourself, listen to Wild Fed, look up all that Daniel does because I think it's going to be super useful for you if you're interested in this journey because you did not grow up a hunting. So you had to learn this as an adult, Mm -hmm. as an adult onset. And so um, that was super useful for me. But for those, they're going to go to your stuff. But like for right now, what are the little tips you can give for, for the people who are just interested in this? Yeah. So the, the first thing is like, go get a hunting license or, or in your, like you described in your case, get a hunter safety course. Mm-hmm. So most States require you do that first. And I just say, go do that now. Like as soon as you can, even if you, you never hunt or you hunt in five years from now, having that's really important. And the other thing is you might have a situation where it's like two years from now, somebody says, Hey, I'm going to go do, I'm going dove hunting next week. Do you want to go? And you're like, you can't because you didn't do a hunter safety course. If you have a hunter safety course at any time, you can buy a hunting license in any state or province of Canada. But if you haven't done that course, which is like a one day thing or bit online or whatever, if you haven't done that, you can't buy a hunting license. So you, you're, you're excluded from this opportunity. So just go do that. Even if you're like marginally think you might one day participate. Right. The, um, the, the next part is you talk to people and take risks and be willing to hear no. Mm. Right. That, that's what it's been for me. A lot of people assume that because I do this publicly, that I have this amazing network of people who just open the door wherever I go with my show. I can accomplish that. But in my Mm. personal life, I don't walk around going like, have you heard of me? I'm a (laughs) guy on Instagram or whatever, you know? So what I end up doing is approaching hunters and um, like, I, I have a story about my bear hunting mentor, um, Lawrence, who, uh, I met at a gas station and I actually had pulled into another gas station and, and for whatever reason, pulled away from their pumps and drove across the street and landed at this other one. I don't know why I did that. And when I did that, there was this guy there with this truck and I saw these stickers on it. Guy who's 70. I walk up to him and I just, I mean, I don't look 
I'm heavily tattooed and pierced and alternative and <laughs> very strange to a guy like this. And I walk up and I just said, Hey, is there, you know, and I, can you tell me about bear hunting? Is there any way I can get involved? And he was real skeptical and he gave me a phone number. And then when I called, he acted like he didn't remember. I mean, I had to go through <laughs> it with him. I had to hear like a bunch of stuff, but eventually he took me out and he's become, he walked my wife down the aisle, you Aww. know? So it's like, take those chances. It's like meeting somebody. You got to be willing to hear no's and you're going to get a lot of yeses. Mm. So same with fishing. It's like, just ask people questions. Say you want to go. Hey, do you know where I can participate? But the other thing is, is there's lots of groups forming now too, because one thing we didn't get into is how hunting is what's funding most of the wildlife research in the country. So your right. state requires hunting license sales in order to pay their biologists. So your state more and more because hunting numbers on the decline, they're putting together all these incredible programs to get people out. So they'll have like a free fishing day where they have instructors come and teach you or they have like butchering classes, hunting intros, all those kind of things. So find those things. It's what we've been talking about. Learn to access what's there for you. There are things there for you go find them. Um, and then on the plant thing, man, there's a lot of entry points there, but, um, I think like taking a plant walk in your mm. local park, like find somebody, there's constantly people running like an herb plant identification, herb medicinal herb classes, just do that stuff and, and start to meet these species around you. Cause you're going to find a lot of them become lifelong friends. And so, um, lastly, I'll just say it, it's a big, it seems like a big intimidating thing hunting, fishing, and foraging, but really you do it one thing at a time and you just got to learn one thing. So if somebody teaches you how to catch trout, that's like one thing and you can get good at that. And then it's like, okay, I got that one. I'll take on the next one and the next one. Um, and you'll find that the sovereignty, even if you do it as a hobby, but knowing you know how to feed yourself mm -hmm. and does it give you a sense of confidence about how you move through the world? And it just makes you feel like you're in a stronger position. I believe in this, this is the indigenous belief around the world that every human being is sovereign. Mm -hmm. You know, we can choose to work with others and we can choose to take direction from others, but ultimately each person should have that walk away ability, like that, that sovereignty, right. but it's really hard when you have to participate in order to get your food. So I'm not saying like, this has allowed me to walk away from the world because right. I'm sitting in front of this computer, but, um, but I have that ability and that quells that deep seated insecurity about the world. And so till you know that feeling, it's hard to describe, but it's really powerful That's and everybody awesome. deserves to have that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before I ask my last question, where can people find you? They find me on Instagram at Daniel Vitalis and they find my show, uh, wild-fed.com and episode one of that show, which each episode is 30 minutes long. Um, that's free up on the website. And then, uh, my podcast is wild fed right now. And as you mentioned prior, I did a podcast called, um, rewild yourself, which was a little bit broader, um, of an approach more philosophical in this show that I do now. Wild fed is more about wild foods. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so my last question is what is lighting you up these days? What's really got you on fire? What's really got me on fire is honestly, it's a lot of what we've been talking about. It's helping people develop a relationship to the world around them. I just think that like a person who's got a vitamin deficiency, mm -hmm. you know, a mineral deficiency and it's affecting their health. I think we have a tremendous nature deficiency and it's affecting our health. And it is, it is impacting all the stuff we're, we've been talking about today. Mm -hmm. Like it would be interesting if nature as medicine could be applied to everybody in the world simultaneously, how these issues would look differently. Mm -hmm. 
because underlying it is, is domestication issues, Yeah, you know, and, and that stuff impacts all of these um, relational socioeconomic and, and hierarchical things. They're all impacted by this first decision to plant wheat 10,000 years ago. It's pretty strange, but it, it's related. So what's exciting to me is holding the door open for somebody to walk through and develop their own relationship with the natural world. I mean, it's when you see somebody have an aha moment with a plant or an animal, it's just like, oh yeah, <laughs> like a religious experience. And so that, that gets me really excited. I love that. Well, thank you so, 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 so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing, such a dream to be able to sit and talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, I just, let me just say that I'm uh, also impacted by the conversation. So thank you too. Thank you so much. I wonder at what point I'm gonna stop saying that this was like my favorite episode. (laughs) I mean, all of them are like my favorite episodes, right? Um, But this is a good one because I love the diversity of topics that we're talking about on this podcast. They mean, all of them mean something to me and there's gonna continue to be a diversity of them so that we can be getting free in every aspect of our lives. And it is crucial to me that we are getting free in relationship to the outside and natural world and coming back to it and having deep relationships with it and learning how to be in reciprocal, in reciprocal community with it. So I hope you really enjoyed this episode and it opened your mind to some perspectives, some thoughts, some ideas that you didn't already have. Because that's really what this is about, is to learn different perspectives, to grow and to challenge ourselves and to maybe not agree, but you know, be grateful that we had the information anyway. So please support Daniel Vitalis and his work continue to support this podcast. It has been amazing, the feedback that I've been getting. So please continue to give it. Um, Please subscribe, review, do all the things. It's really important as we grow. So next week we'll be talking to Richie Reseda and it will be all about feminism and the prison system and Black Lives Matter and obviously just work that we constantly will be doing here and out in the world. So have an incredible, incredible week. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.